If you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. And we're in chapter 8, and we're coming to a very climactic point in Mark's gospel. Very climactic. It is kind of a turning point of this gospel where Jesus goes from just being a healer and, and doing good things around the area to being the Messiah. So who is Jesus? i got two books in my hand. One is called Who is Jesus? And one is called What is the Gospel? These are questions that people are asking. So much so that today a guy wrote a book saying Who is Jesus and What is the Gospel? <clears throat> well, today the passage gives us a clear explanation of that. Jesus leaves no hidden gems and hidden ideas. See, Mark is writing to a group of believers. We, we need to remember that first as we read his gospel. He's writing to a group of non-Jew believers, Gentiles. Um, and they knew who Jesus is. And so do we. But right here, we're going to see history in the making when it actually becomes voiced by one of his disciples. It's really the first time that anyone has spoken out loud that Jesus is the Messiah. So let me read this passage and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Starting with verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. I thank you for Peter's confession, as, as short-sighted as it was. But it speaks to our hearts about how short-sighted we may be at times in understanding who your son is and what he has done for us. Make that real to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I entitled the sermon, The, Sur the Savior Paradox. Um, it, it's just a paradox to understand this. And, and it prompts Jesus... Or Jesus prompts a teaching moment that leads to one of the most astounding realizations by his disciples. His disciples have been following him probably for about two years now, and they're just now getting a glimmer of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And so as the Messiah, the disciples learn exactly what happens to the suffering servant that the Old Testament speaks about. So how does Jesus unfold this mystery of God's salvation? Well, he, he leads three conversations basically, in this passage, regarding his future. First, he prompts a confession by asking these questions, a supernatural declaration. Look at verse 27 through 29. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But, he asked, but, he, but you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. 
Now, I'll give you a little a glimpse of this. Jesus moves from Bethsaida, which is north of the Sea of Galilee, geographically north, about 10 or 20 miles, and he moves further north into more Gentile territory to the city and the area called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was originally a city that was built for the, the god, the false god, the flute-playing half-man, half-goat god called Pan. And yes, it's kind of where Peter Pan comes from, but not exactly. But that's what it originally was. Next slide, Marcia. This is a picture of the ruins of Caesarea Philippi today. I, I fortunately got to sit about where this picture was taken from, and, and we did wander up in those caves and everything. But uh, this is what it looks like today. Next slide, Marcia. This is what an artist thinks it looked like back in first century A.D., Look at the shrines. Look at the temples. These were not just to one god. Originally, the city was built for the god Pan, false god Pan, but this was now become many shrines for many different gods. This city was built by Herod Philip, who was one of Herod the Great's sons, and he built it in honor of Caesar and himself, <laughs> which is why he named it Caesarea Philippi. But it was a place of pagan worship. It was a place of worshiping false idols and gods. And Jesus uses this setting as a backdrop to his questions about who he is. Jesus asked, who do people think I am and who do you think I am? The first question really is the setup for the second question. I mean, Jesus is not really wondering what the crowd thinks, but he wants to see what the disciples think and he's leading into that point. Do they know who I am? That's where Jesus is headed. So the first answers that the disciples give, they're all dead people. They're all dead people. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, they think Jesus is already some resurrected being from the past, which has them, basically reveals that the people are still living in the past. They're still waiting for those glorious days of Moses and David and Elijah but the people are misinformed about the Messiah and even his predecessor, John the Baptist. See, the Messiah and Jewish tradition, before Malachi, the end of your, end of your Old Testament, before Malachi, the Messiah was, is just a term that means anointed one, one set apart, one consecrated. But it really never talked about it in the same terms that they now understand. In the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew in your Bible, the Jewish tradition became a teaching that Messiah, the suffering servant, was going to be someone who was a Davidic king, who would lead them in military triumphs, who would conquer and set Israel back onto the national track that it was. Judaism taught this regularly. It was ingrained in every Jew's mindset. I mean, everybody, from the disciples all the way to the chief priests, and the whole Sanhedrin, which is comprised of, of three groups of people, they believed that the Messiah was a man who would come in military might. And their, and their traditions and their books taught this. So this was, this was like Messiah being someone who's going to die, is, we're going to talk about, is going to be unusual to them. It's going to be strange. But that's what they thought the Messiah was. He was going to restore the glory of Israel again. Make Israel a great nation. There is nothing in the Old Testament that says that. They missed what it says in the Old Testament about Jesus. 
about the Messiah, and we'll get to that in a minute. The second question is really where Jesus is pressing his disciples and really the point of what he's trying to get at. He presses them, what do you, you, he's a very, in the Greek, it's a very emphasized you. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? What is your position on my identity? And Peter speaks up first. If you know anything about your New Testament, you know Peter's going to speak up first. But I believe he's voicing the opinion of all 12, even Judas. I think they all agree with what Peter finally says out loud. You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah or the Christ. Your version may have Christ. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. It's Christos, and it's, it's just basically means the same thing. You are the Messiah or the Christ. Well, Matthew records a more fuller uh, encounter or explanation of this. In Matthew 16, 15 through 17, Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How does Peter know that Jesus is the Messiah? How did this uneducated, gregarious fisherman from Galilee know that Jesus was the Messiah? How did he know that? I'm glad you asked. He only knew it because God told him. He only knew it because God gave him that inclination. God made Peter, God made Peter so sure of who Jesus was, that he blurted it out. I don't even know if Peter really understood what he was saying, and we find later that he did not. But God helped him. It was a supernatural declaration by Peter. And then Jesus confirms it there in Matthew, but he also confirms it in the next verse in our passage when he says, don't tell anybody. But the long-awaited Messiah had come. Think what's going through the disciples' minds right now. The long, long-awaited Messiah has come. And despite the Jewish beliefs, this really does connect all the way back to Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, God told Adam, Eve, and Satan that one day he was going to send a man that would crush Satan's head. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That passage, that person that God's talking to Adam and Eve and Satan about is Jesus Christ. See, but Peter's declaration and the disciples' agreement are not complete yet. They don't fully grasp it. Because why? They're thinking he's going to be some sort of military Davidic king. There is much more to the Messiah. You are the Messiah, Peter said, but which one? And we're about to find out. The Jewish version or another version of the Messiah. See, our whole Bible is a supernatural declaration. God gave the words to human beings to write down. God used humans to write this, and they wrote it perfectly. It's inerrant. It is a, a supernatural declaration. The fact that it even exists is God-ordained. But the truths, the principles, and the foretelling that come from God's mouth to men to record, sometimes without full understanding. I mean, I, I have a feeling that when Ezekiel was writing his 
prophecy and he was writing about a wheel with eyes on it, he had no idea probably what he was writing about. He was just recording what he saw. So, we don't always fully understand. And Peter's confession or declaration, it really must be ours as well. It must be ours. Does your heart believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? That's where we have to ask ourselves this morning, do you, does your heart really believe that? Does your heart really believe that? Have you come to a place in your heart where you can boldly and confidently say, Jesus Christ is the Savior? Jesus is the Savior of the world. When was the last time you said that to someone? When was the last time that you told them you believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he's the only way we can get to heaven? When was the last time you told somebody that? I hope it was recent. I really do. But then, we have to ask yourself, then you have to ask yourself, who do you say that Jesus is? Can you answer the world's question about who is Jesus? You can now, after what we just talked about. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you've been listening, you can answer that question now. And I know, I know what you're thinking, but pastor, I don't know everything. But pastor, I don't fully understand. Neither did Peter, but he blurted it out anyway. And God used it. We need to tell people, we have a bigger picture than Peter had at that point in time. So are you looking for opportunities to tell people that Jesus is the Messiah? To tell someone who really Jesus really is? Because there's a lot of bad ideas out there. There's a lot of bad ideas of what people think about what we do in these worship services and what church is all about. There's a lot of bad ideas out there. But the truth is, it's all about Jesus Christ and what he did for our souls. And have you put yourself in places where you can declare him to others? I hope so. The Holy Spirit will help you make a supernatural declaration. I've seen it. I've experienced it. Start talking to somebody about Jesus and I get words I never knew I had. I'm able to explain things I never thought I'd ever have to explain. But G Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And just, just say it for yourselves right now and where you are. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've got to believe that. We really have to believe that. So Peter makes this divinely inspired declaration. Now Jesus gives them, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. A startling, startling revelation. Verses 30 through 31. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. This is a startling revelation. See, Jesus strictly forbids them to tell anybody right now. And I'm going to tell you why. He's continuing to control the revelation of who he is. First, like I've said before, Jesus wanted to control the narrative. He wanted to control the, the idea that he was there for an earthly kingdom because all the Jews knew was when the Messiah came, he was going to kill the Romans. He was going to conquer armies. He was going to lead them into a glorious new national identity. But Jesus is not in for the insurrectionist idea. He's not there for conquest. But the second reason he's doing it, and especially here with his disciples, is they don't fully understand what the Messiah is going to do 
because he hasn't been to the cross yet. The cross makes all the difference in who the Messiah is. The cross and the empty tomb. And he knew their ignorance would distort the truth if they started spreading that Jesus is the Messiah because, like I said, everybody would hear, he's a king. The king is here. I mean, Pilate even tried that when he crucified Jesus. Hey, you want me to crucify your king? They didn't buy it. So it really, it really turns out that he wants to keep that narrative to himself because it's not ready to be revealed yet. And right here, he begins to teach that to these disciples. And he uses a phrase called son of man to talk about himself. It's a phrase, it's a title that comes from the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel. And it is another title in the Old Testament for the Messiah. And so he uses that and he says, the son of man will suffer many things. The Christ, the Messiah, will suffer many things. The Messiah will suffer arrest. The Messiah will suffer mark mock trials kangaroo courts. The Messiah will suffer beatings and death and be rejected by the Sanhedrin, which is these three groups he mentions, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes make up the Sanhedrin. He'll be rejected by the religion of his people. The Jews are going to reject him. He must be. And I want you to hear Jesus' words right here, okay? This isn't a maybe. This isn't if this happens or it might could happen. Jesus says he must suffer. He must suffer. There's no option there. He must be rejected. No way to get out of that. He must die. There's no way around it. Hear his words. He must. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die. And understand, too, right now, when Jesus says these words, what's going on in the minds of the disciples? Think about where they've been. Think about what they've thought. All the time, for the last two years, they've followed this, this Jesus around all over Galilee and even Jerusalem and Gentile territory. All their dreams about what the Messiah was supposed to be are now done. They're dashed. Their hope has turned into despair all in one sentence. All in one sentence. The reason they follow Jesus has now been ransacked and it's empty in their minds. Their ideas based on centuries of traditional teachings now crumble in their minds. What's next? How can this be? They miss, though, <laughs> this is what's so funny about us sometimes. We miss the best part. What's the best part in that whole passage? They missed the best part and must rise again. Three days after dying, Jesus will rise from the dead. He must rise again. See, they could not see the beauty of the last phrase for the, for the ashes of the first three. And that's what we do so many times. We focus on all the bad stuff that's happened, and we're not focusing on the good thing that has happened or will happen because of Jesus Christ. Well, why were they doing that? Well, they had the wrong understanding of the Messiah. Like I said, they had a temporal, short-sighted, earthly view of who the Christ was and what he was going to do. God sent the head crusher to conquer death. That's the real enemy we have. It's not a foreign power. It's not an illness. It's a death, spiritual death, sin, the real enemy of humanity and human, humanity's souls. He sent Jesus to provide forgiveness 
forgiveness and justification for those who trust him. See, the disciples' plans and the Jews' plans was for a Savior who would save them, their nation, their people. God's plan, God's plan saves peoples, all types of peoples, all nations of peoples. It's been that way from the beginning. This is not some new revelation. You can read back in Genesis. It's all about nations. It's about people groups, language groups. God sent Jesus as the suffering servant for that purpose. And our Bible, as I said, is a supernatural declaration, and it's also full of very startling revelations. Right here is the best startling revelation, that the Messiah would have to come and die for our sins. God's plan to redeem humanity meant sending his own son to suffer and die for our sins. Talk about amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Mm. Well, here's one of the passages. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. If you want to turn over there, I'm going to read this, this chapter. Isaiah 53. If anybody ever wants to ask you, what are, what's proof in the Old Testament that there was a Messiah coming that would die? Well, here it is. This whole chapter is talking about the suffering servant. So it makes it clear what the Messiah was going to do. Isaiah 53, starting with verse 1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. And he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. I had a friend that showed this to a Jewish man one time. And the Jewish man said, that's not Isaiah 53 in my Bible. 
Someone changed it in the Jewish Bible. But that is the suffering servant that we call Jesus Christ. Jesus came to pour out his soul to death. Jesus came to be counted as a sinner. Jesus came to bear the sins of many and to intercede for all sinners, all who will believe in him. You see what the Jews missed in their Bible? I hope you haven't missed it. Jesus came to save sinners, to grant forgiveness from God. Jesus lived, died, and rose again to make possible the justification of all who trust in him. His suffering, his rejection, and his death grants us heaven to those who believe in him. His resurrection makes it a reality. He rose to make it clear to us that it is possible to be forgiven and ushered into heaven. And by the grace of God, we who place our faith in Jesus will be saved from eternal death. That eternal death penalty that every human being is under because they have sinned against the holy God. I can't make it any clearer. Scripture can't make it any clearer. Jesus Christ suffered the worst death imaginable for doing nothing wrong but for being your sacrifice for your sins. So believe in him and be forgiven. That's the call. Don't be startled by that. Accept it. So Peter gave a great supernatural proclamation of Jesus' identity. Jesus gave the disciples the fuller picture. <laughs> he gave them all the details. But they now struggle to accept it. A stinging correction. Look at verses 32 and 33. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So Jesus was speaking pretty openly and plainly to the disciples about this. Okay, He was making it very clear, I am going to go to Jerusalem at some point and die and rise again. But poor Peter couldn't handle that. Poor Peter could not tolerate that open discussion about Jesus dying because this was supposed to be our, our king. So Peter rebuked Jesus strongly. I mean, he rebuked him. He assumed he had the right and the authority to tell Jesus, this isn't going to happen. And as Peter spoke up first, and he was trying to protect his master. So I give him a, a, an A for good intentions, but wrong intentions, wrong, wrong motivation. But Peter spoke up first like he always does. But I'm telling you, the other disciples were probably ready to do the same thing because that's why Jesus turned and looked at them because they're all thinking the same thing. That's not happening. We're not letting that happen. That is not going to happen. He didn't have the right understanding, Peter didn't, neither did the disciples. He had good intentions, but he's misinformed. So Jesus turns around from Peter and looks at his little militia of 12 disciples. <laughs> they're, ready. they're ready to go to war for Jesus. And he knows they need to hear what he is about to say. Peter has crossed the line. He is tempting Jesus just like Satan tempted Jesus to give up the Father's plans and save yourself. You read about it in Matthew 4. Satan is trying to get Jesus to abort the mission he's been given. And that's exactly what Peter is now trying to offer him. 
Jesus finished his time with Satan the same way he's critiquing and correcting Peter. Get away, Satan. Get away from me, Satan. It's the same way, same phrase that Jesus said to Satan. Obviously, Peter's not cast out of the group. He didn't get, he didn't get his discipleship card revoked, okay? He's still part of it. But Jesus is making clear that any interference with his passion is evil. It's evil. Any interference with him going to the cross and dying for sins is evil. It's a sin. And Jesus explains it plainly. He says, you have the wrong focus. You have the incorrect conclusion. You have selfish ideas. You, you like going around with me and everybody being popular and all this good stuff that's happening. You don't want that to end. But this is all about God's plan. This has always been, always about God's plan. It's never been about man's plan or man's ideas. Jesus corrects Peter and the disciples to remember that God is sovereign and his way will always take precedence, no matter what you think is the right way to do things, his way will take precedence. So Peter received a pretty stinging rebuke, correction. Moses did too. Matter of fact, he didn't get to go to the promised land. After, after all those years of preparation and leading a, a grumbling people around in the, in the desert, he didn't get to go to the promised land. Paul received a startling and stunning and stinging rebuke when he was saved. David, Adam, they all received these corrections, but they accepted them and they repented. They accepted these and repented for the glory of God. Now, 11 of the 12 disciples here did the same thing. They accepted this rebuke, but Judas didn't, and we'll get to him eventually. But Jesus rebukes Peter because, you know what's going on inside Jesus' head when he hears Peter rebuke him? Here's what, here's what Jesus is thinking. Paul writes about it in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this is what is on Jesus' mind 100% of the time since he was born. I'm going to the cross. I'm emptying myself. I am serving my Father. I am going to die for humanity's sins. You see how passionate Jesus was about his passion, his mission, his sacrifice? He would let nothing interfere with it. Nothing. How passionate are you about his provision of salvation for your soul? I hope you're passionate about it. I do. Do you resist Satan when he tries to diminish what Jesus has done for your soul? Do you actively resist him? If your obedience is floundering on some point, you may be receiving a stinging rebuke of discipline from God. You know, many of our difficulties in life are a result of our own misbehavior, our own actions. Even as Christians, we sometimes bring difficulties on our life. But disobedience, I promise you, Scripture does too, will be corrected by the Father. Because the Father doesn't have any illegitimate children. He has children he loves and cares for. So God the Father will correct his children's behavior. So when you receive a stinging rebuke, accept it. Repent of what's causing it. 
confess your sins and accept the forgiveness that's in Jesus Christ. Because I'm going to tell you, if you correct your life and you follow the correction God's giving you, it'll lead to peace and it'll lead to joy, which brings glory to the Father because one of his children is obeying. And this truly is what sanctification is, the purifying of our souls, the making our lives fully committed to Christ in every aspect. It is God's will for us to be sanctified. Scripture tells us that too. So this morning, Jesus has given a clear revelation of his messianic mission. And he's given it to the disciples, and now we read it in hindsight. And he'll have to correct their understanding a few more times before he gets to the cross. But it's really no different than us. We, we need that correction a lot. But as Jesus moves toward Calvary, they'll get more of the picture. But they'll really understand when he rises from the dead. So who is Jesus? That question is out there. And there are many who have asked the question, but there are many who will not listen to the answer. It's sad to say. But we can answer that question now. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he did it by dying for us. Now that's the paradox of the Savior right there. You're following someone who died for your sins who died so that we can enter heaven. It's a strange idea, but to a Christian, it's not a paradox at all. It's the only way we could get to heaven. It's the only way we could believe. God the Son died so that we might live forever when we all get to heaven, in heaven. It's a paradox to the human mind, but God makes it clear to those who believe. So let's pray about that right now. Let's take some time of of silent prayer just to pray through these things that you might have thought about. We're going to have a time of pastoral prayer. If you want to come to the the front here and pray, that's fine. We're going to have some silent time, and then I'll close us out after a minute or so. So let's pray right now.